if I were to go back to being 25 again, what I would have done differently is I would have, instead of buying my first house, are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to Where Should I Invest? And it is Sarah Larby. And today's guest is Megan Chomut, who is a good friend of mine. We've actually never met in person, but we've had many good conversations, Zoom meetings, phone calls, and uh, it is great to work with some of the best financial planners out there that know how to incorporate real estate investing as part of the overall strategy. And she's also a real estate investor herself, a landlord doing the buy and hold strategy. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about how to protect your investments, how to ensure that you get unbiased financial planning advice. We talk about fees. We talk about the reality of real estate investing and what we see out there that is not always reality and everything in between. So I hope you guys enjoy today's podcast and uh, reach out to Megan Chomut if you've got any questions about your overall real estate plan and incorporating everything from not only real estate, but insurance and your strategy for how to get to the next one, whether it's RSPs, tax-free savings accounts, all of those good things. Megan is uh, an expert at providing some unbiased recommendations. So I hope you guys enjoy the podcast and see you soon. Megan, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, I've had so many great comments from the last time that you were on. And, you know, again, it's just a great opportunity for us to, to revisit this because there's always things that, that change. Um, and there's always going to be some important things that we have to remember, even though we are predominantly talking about real estate, uh, you know, on my podcast, I think it's also important to talk about the overall financial picture, the overall well-being from a, you know, a financial planning standpoint, because it all comes together at the end of the day. At the end of the day, so for those of you listening to this right now, if you haven't heard Megan on uh, the prior podcast, go back and, and search for that. It was uh, lots of great information. But maybe we can do a quick, like, twenty-minute or twenty-seconds overview of uh, of what it is that you do and how you help real estate investors. So, in terms of helping real estate investors, I have my CFP designation, which means I'm a certified financial planner. And I help people take a broader lens and look at where they currently are and where they want to be and what exactly are the step-by-step -step things that they need to kind of check off to make sure that they're moving in the right direction. And in doing this, we need to consider all aspects. We need to consider savings. We need to consider debt. We need to consider especially tax consequences of every single decision along the way. Because a decision that you make today can really have a dramatic tax consequence in the long, even midterm future. So um, that's really what I do is I just take the broad lens and then we narrow in on looking at the bite-sized decisions that they need to make to get them to their, that goal. Absolutely. And 
I wanted to have you come back and, and I'm very particular in, you know, and there's lots of designations, right? Financial advisor, financial planner, certified financial planner. I mean, it gets really confusing, but I wanted to have you back because there's not many people like you out there that are actually incorporating real estates into the overall plan. And I think that's just really important because a lot of other advisors will a, not understand real estate, be you know, again, what's, what's the, really their motive behind wh- where they position your money. And, and so I think it's just really important to have somebody that you can work with from a financial standpoint that is going to not say, don't buy real estate, buy these mutual funds instead and pad their own pockets. Are you able to just share a little bit about the industry and maybe just a little bit of the different designations and what to watch out for? Mm-hmm. So I started in the investment space in 2008 and even with, and I didn't buy my first investment property until 2015. So even with my background in finance and accounting and investments, I still didn't get a really solid picture of what investment property investing looked like until my feet were in the mud. So it's one thing to look at the numbers. It's one thing to hear tabloids on the news about tenants not paying rent or destroying your property. It's another thing to have your boots on the ground and actually going through the steps. So that being said, if someone does approach their financial advisor and they do recommend not to get involved, it's just because they don't really understand. And I've been there too. It does feel risky when you haven't had any experience doing it, or maybe you don't know anybody who is also doing it. So the way that people in this industry get compensated are a couple different ways. One is based on your investments. So as you slowly accumulate investments in maybe your tax-free savings account or your RSP, there are, they feel really small, but there are little fees in there that go to the advisor for providing you with advice and guidance and a financial plan and all of that support. So it's one thing to do the investment It's another thing completely if you're doing the investment with an advisor, but you're not getting any of that support. I also am a strong advocate to work with people who have maybe five or 10 steps ahead of you, or at least have, like I said, their feet in the mud too. So as you come across problems or questions, you know that you're going to somebody who might have already faced those same problems and they can not only give you advice, which is by the book and what you know the, the theory tells you is the right decision, but also what they experienced themselves when they came across that same situation. So I'd like to, I'd like to say that advisors all across Canada aren't, they're trying to do the best for you. But there is that financial incentive for every dollar that you put into your TFSA or RSP or however you're investing. It does trickle back to that advisor. And if you want to take 100,000 of that money and put it towards a down payment on a property, it does come out of their 
their income. So I'd like to say that there isn't a conflict of interest, um, but there is a monetary exchange there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, compound interest, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. However, if you're paying the advisor uh, an extra percent or two, you know, once you, you factor in 20 years of time, hundreds of thousands of dollars, that is a lot of money that you are just, in my opinion, sorry, financial advisors, the, the upfront is the way to go. You know, it's important that we as investors keep the money that we need to keep for investing and for ourselves. But we also need to have, in my opinion, financial advice. I just believe that we pay for it upfront. And, and so I don't, you know, maybe you can share a little bit about like how, how it works with, with you and your clients, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I work with clients is I only get compensated from direct fees paid to me from my clients. So nobody needs to be worried that if I make a recommendation or I suggest maybe a type of product or something that I'm going to get any kickback from that. If I say you should call so-and-so and so-and-so because they're really experienced mortgage brokers, it's because they are experienced mortgage brokers. It isn't because they're going to give me a piece of their pie. So there's absolutely no money that comes my way besides giving advice right to my clients. The other thing to consider is that when you work for somebody or when you work with somebody that is fee only, it does feel like it's coming out of your cash flow, but it already is coming out of your cash flow. So if that financial advisor who's fee only like myself, we can show you how to better structure your investments, then you can wipe out those fees that you were paying anyways. For example, I had a education savings account set up with, for my kids with my previous employer, and my fees were about $2,000 a year which honestly, I don't mind paying if I'm getting solid quality advice and really someone making sure I'm getting the appropriate rate of return and that I'm meeting my goals and I'm on track. And I, you know, I got all those check boxes checked off, but I hadn't heard from them in a couple of years. So what had I paid, you know, technically $4,000 for? I don't know. Right. No, absolutely. So so would you be able to share then like how, you know, like how you support your clients along the way, like what that looks like? Are you talking to them on a regular basis? How regular? So what I do with my clients is we, so for example, in terms of the fees, the fees are one, it's kind of like rent almost. It's like one larger lump sum deposit to get started. We get your file going, we get a financial plan going, and then it's a monthly fee after that. Every fee-only advisor is a little bit different, but I like to think about it like what you're getting essentially is a financial roadmap with one year of support. So you could take all those, you know, 11 monthly payments plus that one lump sum and pay them all at once right. and I'll give you a financial plan. The problem with that is I'm going to deliver you a financial plan and then in three months you're going to say, oh, I'm... I got an opportunity to refinance and this came up and now that financial plan I just did for you is kind of garbage mm -hmm. because I feel like, especially with real estate investors, our lives are changing so quickly as opportunities or sometimes unfortunate events are happening. So the way that I work with clients is the first thing we do is we, I do have them get a 
an assessment done by my client success coordinator, and she tells me what kind of person these people are. I find this very valuable, especially if there's a couple, because sometimes couples are complete opposites, which makes a financial plan and talking about goals and talking about structure and next steps very challenging. So this way I'm able to create some sort of dynamic in terms of the meeting in my deliverables and the way that I communicate with clients based on the type of people that they are. So we establish that and then we move forward to say, okay, where are you right now? What does your picture look like right now? And if you were to do nothing, this is what happens. Are you, do you get to your goal anyway? <laughs> if you're doing nothing, most people know, but sometimes, I mean, if you're really fortunate, then that, that might be your reality. So then it's saying, okay, this is where you are right now. In three months, you need to be here. So we need to make sure, maybe for some people, it's a little bit shorter, it's a little bit longer based on their goals. So in general, what I have established is at first for those first two months that we're working together, we're in constant communication. So it's weekly, it's for sure monthly, it's here's the deliverable, let's hop on a call, what do you think, what kind of questions do you have? And then within eight weeks, you have a set financial plan for that whole year that we're going to be working together. And what I do is every quarter, we do what I call a progress report. So where were you when we started working together? Where are you now? And is it meeting those stakes in the sand that we said you had to hit by this date and this date and this date? Because if it's not, then we either need to figure out how to get you a better rate of return, extend your timeline. Like there's things that we have to tweak. And if we're not moving all those gears at least every quarter, then getting to your goal is going to be quite challenging. So that's kind of how I work with clients for sure. Every, at first it's very constant and then it's every quarter we do a progress report. And then the thing about real estate investors is I always say to the clients, if you don't feel like you're, you need to feel like you're bombarding me with questions because a lot of us don't, really know the full financial picture because we're so focused in one spot because that's the spot we're trying to grow mm -hmm. and so i'm at first it's it's constant <laughs> and now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors Hey guys, just want to take a quick moment and introduce you to a key member of my power team. Dylan Suter is my realtor who's been working very hard to find me amazing deals. And Dylan, I'm a big proponent in working with realtors that are investors. And Dylan is truly an investor. Welcome Dylan. And thank you so much for being a sponsor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I want to first thank you for having us as a sponsor. We're really grateful to be working with you and all of the support you've given us over the past couple of years. So thank you so much for that. And our focus as Elevation Realty is to focus our attention primarily on real estate investors that are looking to replace their active income with a passive income and go enjoy what they like most, such as time with the family or up at the cottage, whatever it may be. So what we do is we focus our attention on creating a plan specific for each client, whether that is something they want to have five properties in five years and be able to sit on them for 10 years and then sell them and retire on the, the equity. Or if they're looking to scale their portfolio and retire in the next 12 months, we can look at doing that as well through joint ventures or Airbnb short-term rentals. We can talk through buildings. 
buy, renovate, refinance, single family purchases, and the list goes on. That's awesome. Now, Dylan, if people wanted to reach out and get help from you, where can they go? They can check us out online at www.elevationrealty.ca, E-L-E-V-A-T-I-O-N, realty.ca, or they can email us at info at elevationrealty.ca, give us a call or text at 905-592-4220, or check us out at The Right Club or other meetup groups that we're usually at as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dylan. It is awesome working with you as always. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that makes sense. And I mean, that is reassuring too, that you've got a plan that you're, you're able to tweak along the way. So I want to take a little bit of a, a different uh, step and, and just ask you a series of questions on, on what your thoughts are on you know different products, if, if that's okay. Yeah, um, I, I want to start with, with mortgage insurance. If you can share yes or no, I'm a big believer that to me, it's not the right product. However, I'm not the advisor, sorry, planner. Um, you've got, uh, you know, probably lots, lots of uh, questions along those, those lines. So what do you think about uh, when your bank, your teller asks you if you want to get mortgage insurance? For mortgage insurance, for some of us, it's important. Um, we should be covering ourselves in the event that we are unable to, um, that we die. <laughs> is essentially to protect our loved ones. The problem with bank mortgage insurance is that it is very expensive and it is not an ideal product. It's convenient, which is one reason why it's so expensive. So in terms of protecting yourself, well, not yourself, protecting your loved ones, should something happen to you, when you buy insurance through your teller, they're saying, we're going to tack on an extra $50 a month. And if something happens to you, we'll pay off the mortgage. Well, as hopefully that mortgage is going down as your tenants pay the rent. <laughs> so you're paying a $50 set rate for something that's the, your benefit is decreasing when essentially if you needed the coverage on that property you could probably get something that doesn't decrease so if, let's say the property's worth a hundred thousand dollars and in five years it's it's um the mortgage on it is now let's say 75. so the bank will cover that 75 if something happens to you but if you were to have bought your own insurance the the mortgage provider would give you the full hundred and you'd be paying less. So it's kind of one of those things where insurance is important, but you really have to make sure that number one, you need it because you might not even need it. And number two, are you paying for something that's of lower quality? And if you are, then, then don't get it. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard, you know, through the grapevines of them because you're not technically underwriting it at that point in time. I mean, they're asking like five or six questions to people, but it's not actually fully underwritten where term insurance, like you've got to actually underwrite it at the time and then you're set. But, you know, through different people, I've heard that sometimes they try to push back and say, oh, well, you know what, we're not going to pay it out because of this and this reason or whatnot. So again, I'm not, I'm not the, the advisor per se, but 
you know, it's, it's like you've been paying this $50 or whatever it is per month. And, and are you going to actually be able to get paid out on the claim or are they going to give you some pushback based on, you know, not having the underwriter uh, do that at the time that you were actually answering those questions. And uh, you know, there's no medical, there's not a whole lot of stuff that was done. Right. That's a good point too. I, I actually don't know. Cause I don't, I'm not in that part of the product selling place, but the other thing is some people don't even know they have this. So they might've bought their place. And when they went through all the mortgage questions, somebody just selected yes for them. And they may have asked them in that moment, do you need insurance? I recommend you get it. And then maybe they did even give the caveat in there. I'm going to put yes here for you, but you should get covered yourself. So let's just cover you so that when you leave this building, if anything happens to you, you're going to be okay. Your, your family will be okay, but go and talk to an insurance rep and get something in place that is much better quality and much cheaper, but then you forgot. So I've seen a lot of people when I review their mortgage statements, be like, okay, you have a mortgage insurance thing that you're paying here, $60 a month. You, I know, because I know you and I know your health and I know your age and how much you need you could get this for $19. So you're paying 60 and how long have you been paying that? That money could have went to maybe another property acquisition fund or maybe towards your debt, or you could have thrown it around. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I just want to take a quick moment here and pause the podcast to introduce you to one of my favorite contractors, John from Blackjack Contracting Inc. And he has been serving the Niagara, Hamilton and Brantford areas for the past three years and has become the area's legal basement suite renovation specialist. He works with many investors that I know and some newer investors, some more experienced investors, and he converts single family homes into multiple units, as well as my favorite favorite strategy, the Burr strategy. So he's well-versed in those as well to make sure that we can achieve the maximum value of the property and the maximum ARV. He has also completed over 100 units from Brantford to Niagara Falls and everywhere in between as well. They do everything from permitting to the design to the final cleaning before listing our rentals for rent or for sale. And he's also a fully licensed electrical contractor. He's certified with ESA and he will take jobs of all sizes. So no job is too big. He's done a complete guts really from the ground up. So super impressed with his work and what he's been doing for fellow investors that I know as well. So if you wanted to reach out, his website is blackjack contractinginc.ca and you can ask him whatever questions you have. You can also reach out to him Instagram, which is at Blackjack Contracting Inc. And like he says, he knows that investing feels like the biggest gamble of our lives. So when you have Blackjack on your side, the house always wins. I will also add that there is currently a ban as of April 4th on new permits. So he will still actively work to the law's extent and actively work with investors to get projects planned out for when the ban is lifted. So that way you're not necessarily waiting and waiting and waiting. So guys, 100%, I recommend Blackjack Contracting. I will say that finding the right contractor is sometimes a hassle and getting a good one that works with investors that understands the numbers is going to be critical in our success, especially when doing the birth strategy. And now back to the show. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have a, a second pair of eyes on this kind of stuff. What else are you seeing that people do that you're like, oh, you know what, we can easily fix this and this. Like, you know, we, we, I mean, we talked about the mortgage insurance piece, but is there anything else that you're seeing out there that you have like a conversation with people often about to help, you know, them figure out their financial situation? Maybe it's something that they've been doing that's kind of a not so good um, thing that they've been doing that you can easily fix or, or I don't know, I'll, I'll leave it open for your interpretation. If I were to tie this back to the people that I work with um, in terms of buying their maybe first or second rental property, it's that number one, buying a property to fix a shaky foundation of a financial situation is, I promise you, not going to fix it. (laughs) Buying, trying to fix a financial foundation problem with a rental property is kind of like having a relationship problem and trying to fix it with a baby. It just stresses it out. So if you're buying your first or second property, it's really important just to lay everything out on the table, get super clear on what's happening and where the moving pieces are and what even are your goals. And I think that would be my second common thing that I see is people changing their goals maybe more often or maybe the criteria that things fit into so like i might um be working with someone and they they say i'm interested in this type of property i really encourage people to get a little bit more specific than maybe the type of property just because i call it the picky eater theory like just be picky because If you're too broad, especially when you're first getting started, there's a lot of variables that, uh, what's that word where it's like shiny object? You start chasing that, that, you know, I saw Sarah talked on the podcast about this or or I heard so-and-so is trying this and you you start, Yeah. yeah, that shiny object. So I recommend number one, don't fix you know, bad financial habits with a rental property because it will, I, I promise it'll just be like gasoline on a fire and be picky and kind of narrow in and kind of and stick to that for like, for example, if I wanted to look for, a, if my thing was going to be, a, I want a three unit, I want the basement to be this, I want it to be in this general area and absolutely no, um, I don't know, broiler. It has to have this type of heating then if you go and fall in love with a three unit and then you you see that it has the broiler in the basement it's got to be a no you have to like just stick to that picky eater theory for for at least six months just to kind of shoot away those shiny objects yeah i mean it'll it'll allow people to probably take action rather than just saying oh should i do this should i do that instead right i mean there's lots of strategies as you were saying that i was thinking okay you you go with the burr strategy somebody else might do buy and hold somebody else might do pre-construction somebody else might do you know rent to own maybe you just start with a strategy and then just narrow that down from there i think that's great advice so i'm going to ask you a few more questions just to get your your opinion on things what do you think if somebody has debts and I'll leave that open to your interpretation, but they also want to be investing, you know, what, what should come first? Could it be done in conjunction? And if so, how? 
Yeah, you absolutely can have debt and still like, I think that there is something going on. I don't know if it's in media or just pop culture where debt is bad. Debt is just another tool in your toolkit, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And if you have access to it or you have it, then it's just something you have. It's not bad or good. The problem I can see is if you're already struggling with your debt repayments, maybe investing should take a back seat for, for a little while until you get some some stability. Um, there's absolutely, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with having debt and starting to invest. That shouldn't stop you as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends what kind of debt too. Like if it's like credit card debt and it's like 24% versus like a HELOC or something, you know what I mean? Like that's very different debt from one to the other, but I do agree with you. Like you've got to make sure that like it's being serviced correctly, you know, first and foremost. Do you ever do any like debt consolidation, like roll like high interest debt into a mortgage to lower the payments? Like if so, can you just maybe just walk us through like what that might look like? Yeah. So if you do have debt, like Sarah was saying, that's maybe credit card debt, high interest, um, rolling it over to something like uh, a HELOC, if you have the opportunity to do that, is a, is a great opportunity to save you on interest. So for most of our credit cards here, they're, they're like 19 to 24%. And that's, that can get really significant. Like, like Sarah mentioned earlier with the, uh, the compound, the compound interest, it works in your favor. Absolutely. If you're investing, unfortunately, it, the, the compounding effect of interest has a real negative impact if you start struggling making your debt repayments. And so if you can ease the burden by, by switching that 24% to maybe something more manageable, like 6%, even something, you know, half of the interest rate that you're paying, every dollar that you're putting towards debt will go more towards the principal that you incurred on your credit card, maybe to finance COVID life while things were, were hard, every dollar will have more weight because less of it will be going to pay interest. So um, I'm, I, it's one of those things where I'm not a huge advocate of consolidating. I would love for you to just pay it off. And if consolidating it is gonna prolong your timeline and make you more comfortable and maybe even increase your debt, I don't want to give you a crutch, but it is an opportunity if you need it just to get ahead a little bit. Yeah. As long as like the reason that you got there in the first place is not repeated, right? Um, for whatever that is. So how about this question? If somebody is looking to really create wealth, okay, let's just say they're 25, they've got a job, they're starting out you know, what are some of the things that you would recommend that they start doing at 25 to get, you know, let's call it to, let's just say a million dollars. Not that that is a lot anymore these days anyways, but let's just say they want to get to a million dollars in 10 to 15 years or whatever that number is. What are some things that you might want to say to them to start doing? Let's just pretend they don't have debt because there's other things that factor in. Obviously everyone's situation is different, but let's just say no debt, no school debt. Uh, they're just starting and they're making, let's call it 80 grand. 
uh, a year at whatever the job is? Mm -hmm. Okay, good question. And I, I'm pretty sure I have a post on my Instagram that's exactly walking people through this. And of course, I'm using real estate because I'm biased. Okay. And I'm older than 25. But if I were to go back to being 25 again, what I would have done differently is I would have, instead of buying my first house as my starter home, what I would have done is I would have bought a duplex or a triplex moved into it and rent out the other two units. And then when I felt established and ready to go to the next project, I would do the exact same thing again. I think that when you're younger and you have more flexibility, if, if real estate is something that real estate will really accelerate your wealth because not only are you going to get, I, I consider them like the property is like the goose and the rent payments are like those golden eggs and you get both. So if you sell the property, you lose both. And that's what I would have done differently at, you know, in my twenties is what I would have done is I would have done that house hacking strategy of living in the property and then moving on. And maybe, and then maybe, I mean, now I, I have a bunch of kids and I'm busy and I, I struggle sometimes with real estate and, and because it is time consuming, I maybe would move over to the lending. <laughs> I would get established. Yeah, that's what I would do is I would make my million dollars with the properties, the two, prop two three properties in terms of the rent payments and the, the appreciation. And then with my equity in those properties, I would lend it out. And then I would get those, you know, rent, not rent payments, the mortgage payments from those um, borrowers. Yeah, no, absolutely. So how much, and then I want to go to the other side and, and pick on, you know, some, like somebody that's 50, 55, but for a 25 year old right now, how much of their portfolio as they're doing this should be real estate specific versus paper assets versus, you know, whatever else, like, do you have a percentage that you would recommend? I don't have a set percentage because it's going to depend on every person. I think that when you first get started, in, when you're 25, obviously, if you have, if you buy your first rental, it's going to be a larger portion of your portfolio. But as you get those rent payments, you can do whatever you want with them. You could take some of them and put them towards paper assets. So in terms of what type of account, I am leaning more towards the tax-free savings account because it is a really great opportunity because what I'm finding now is when I'm working with clients that are, you know, 55 and they're wanting to maybe sell their properties or whatever, the gains on those properties are so painful. And I understand that, you know, if they make, let's say a million dollars in gains, it's, you're winning, but that tax consequence is so painful that it almost limits your critical thinking to make that decision to put a million dollars in your pocket just because you don't want to give so much of your money to the government. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, I do like the tax-free savings account. I also do like the idea of having an emergency account that wouldn't be invested in anything. So you could put it in a high interest um, TFSA at the bank if you have the room. But as you move, as you when you first start out, a larger portion of, of your portfolio will be real estate until um, you're, you have the opportunity to diversify. Okay, no, that's interesting. And you mentioned a savings account and an emergency account. Like how many months of expenses should somebody have in their emergency account? And then how many months should they have if they've got like five rental properties? And is that, is that any different? Yeah, good question. So the rule of thumb has been typically three months of expenses. And COVID kind of threw a wrench in that for a lot of people because three months of expenses really wasn't enough. So I would just start with, with the goal of being three months of expenses. So in terms of your personal situation, I would say your emergency account should be able to put food on the table, keep your lights on and pay your debt obligations. So you would take out, if you were to have your budget laid out and you have, you know, budget items for things like, you know, getting your hair cut and, you know, all those little silly things that you have to account for, just take those out because don't worry about that when you're going through an emergency. Um, and just keep your lights on, keep your, keep food on the table and pay your debt obligations. Stop saving, stop all those little things and just what's that number times three. And then same thing for the rental property. What are those automatic payments that you have to make? The mortgage, maybe you're paying utilities, um, property taxes, those sorts of things, yeah. mm -hmm. insurance, like all of those automatic kind of required payments. What is that number times three? And, um, and so I've taken out those other, they're very important expenses like vacancy, capital expenditures, repairs and maintenance. They are, but in the event of an emergency, it's just kind of doing what you can with what you got. So mm -hmm. three months is normal, but after COVID, I think we all might be leaning more towards a, a larger number, something maybe close to one year. Well, especially because the landlord tenant board right now is like 12 months behind. So imagine if you've got a tenant that doesn't pay well and you're carrying it. I mean, it might be one year, but the chances of, of five of the properties having that happen at the same time is, is probably fairly slim. But, you know, if, if you have a property and the tenant stops paying, I don't know if you necessarily need 12 months, but maybe, yeah, you're right. Like something in between, maybe six months, maybe nine months. But now if somebody has 20 properties, are they getting three months per property? Like, what, what do you think about that? I think they have to look at their overall portfolio and kind of make an evaluation there. Because the other nice thing with, I mean, in terms of your personal, I always recommend having the cash. But in terms of rental properties, if you have access to something like, an, like a HELOC, maybe that's more of an appropriate yeah. um, emergency strategy. Because I, in terms of your... Um, going through an emergency and like go, what is going through an emergency like really like it's not that your furnace breaks or it's not like an emergency is like somebody you love dies your child gets sick you lose a limb like those are the emergencies they're things that you never thought or would never wish on to anybody so 
Um, in terms of the rental properties, maybe a HELOC is a more appropriate strategy, but for your personal, when you are struggling and you need to access debt to finance an already stressful situation, it is very anxiety provoking. So I, I never recommend a line of credit for the personal side of things to finance your life. But to finance your rental properties, I mean, the interest is tax deductible. You, there are strategies there. So in terms of having you know, a slush fund, it could just be one big slush fund for all your properties, not on an individual basis. And it could be a mix of a slush fund for, those, for the whole portfolio of properties Plus, you know, you have access to, you know, one, two, three, Pineapple Street because the whole HELOC's available. You, you know, you're, you were kind of saving it for maybe an, an acquisition or an opportunity or a lending, but it's kind of going to be your emergency fund now, just in case. So it sounds to me like refinancing and getting HELOCs with the banks and the lenders that will allow it is going to be important in the overall plan. I agree. I mean, I'm not a mortgage broker and I feel like the lending environment is changing minute by minute. So I don't want to recommend that people always take advantage of it. But I mean, having access and not using it is... It helps with your, your credit utilization ratio as well, especially if you're not using it. But I will, I will tell you, you don't, you don't want to be asking for money when you need it, when you have a deal. It's just, to me, in my own personal opinion, again, guys just you know, work with a mortgage broker. But if it's available and you can do it, get access to money when you don't need it uh, and position yourself ahead of time. That would be my recommendation. So what about now somebody that's, you know, 50, 55, you know, they might have 10 years left or so that they want to be really working and then they want to be able to enjoy uh, the retirement years. You know, what are some things that you might recommend for them? Maybe they own their house. They might have, I don't know, let's just say they own a million dollar house and they might have a couple hundred left to pay off on it. What are some of the things that you might suggest that they do so that they can, uh, you know, get to their, their goal of not having to work past, you know, let's just call it 10 plus more years. So somebody who is kind of just starting to crest over to that retirement. So the, they're getting out of the asset accumulation phases and going into the income requirement phase. It's going to differ depending on what their, what was their plan? So you got to 50 and what did you think was going to happen? Do you have a pension? Were you going to do CPP? Were you saving in RSPs? Like where were you? What do you got? Um, if all they have is their house, there is the opportunity there to refinance that house. Look at the equity. What could you get from an, could you find a cash flowing income property that also meets the financing kind of um, requirements in terms of accessing your line of credit on your house that is you've done a great job paying off the market right now I'm seeing it's a struggle to find deals so um, going long term is advantageous if you only have you'd say 10 years to, I mean, even 10 years. So if you're 50 and you want to retire at 60, it's one thing, but if you want to retire at 55, 
that would be something different. Um, I think it would be a mix. I think maybe joint, like I said, you have to be picky, pick your strategy and try it. Maybe a joint venture would be a good opportunity. Maybe lending makes more sense. Dip your toes in, maybe doing something um, like mortgage financing. Like there's so many opportunities to get into real estate without having to go out and, and do it solo, like the lone wolf. Um, and, and like you said earlier, it's like, there's no bad strategy. People are having so much success with every single strategy there is with real estate. It's just doing the right things one after another and in, in, in sequence. Yeah. And, and also planning for a potential downfall at some point. Right. And this is why like the cash flow is important. Yeah. You'll do well with equity in many markets, especially in Southern Ontario, but that's not always guaranteed. Right. I mean, you'll, you'll likely build hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity, but you know, the cash flow that you have is going to help you sustain that property and yourself throughout those bad times. So I, I think it's also important to plan for the downturns just because everyone looks like a hero in the good times you know, and then you see what, what the strategies and, and uh, you know, what actually worked out because there's a lot of speculators out there, right? Like if you're buying a, a super expensive condo that your rent is only covering half your mortgage on and you're still having to pay, you know, the rest of it for somebody else to live there and you're hoping that it's going to keep going up. I mean, not my ideal strategy are people making money right now. They're making money down the road. If, if markets change and, and the market cycle, you know, takes a bit of a shift, that's not guaranteed. Mm -hmm. I think too, if you find a property like that's the perfect burr strategy, it's something different than finding the property that you can rent out right away and start seeing that cash flow right away. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's different opportunities for every age group. The trick with starting in your fifties, when you want to, let's say retire at 55 is you have to acquire either whatever, like let's say you're gonna go with rentals. You have to acquire your first one, acquire your second one, and now you are almost getting to that point where you may not be a T4 income earner anymore. So if you retire at 55 and you don't have a T4 anymore, it just limits your opportunity to financing. Like, it's kind of like this juggling game where you have to, you want to retire, you want to reduce your income, but you need your income sometimes for financing, depending on what strategy you're going to take. Yeah. Or, or you go into commercial, you know, five units above um, properties where at that point in time that could, uh, that could help. And then there are some like other lenders, like trust companies and, and credit unions and like, you know, the T4, it will be as important and they will look at different types of income. So there's, again, they're a little bit more expensive than probably a big bank, but you know, there's, there's, I think there's still options, but yeah, I mean, if you've got a, a solid, steady, you know, decent paying T4 job, you know, acquire what you can while you have it. Um, because, you know, one of the things like when I left my corporate job and I had a conversation with, with my mortgage broker, I could still qualify for quite a bit more than I actually thought, which is pretty cool from a residential standpoint, but I'm not qualifying with uh, the typical banks. So I'm going to have to go to like trust companies, which it is what it is, but you know, the, the rates are a little bit higher. The terms are a little bit different. I can't, it's a HELOC situation. Flexibility is not the same, but 
I, I'm okay with that, right? Um, but I think I think there's still things. It's just you know, you'll still have to maneuver uh, a little bit around it. What do you think is is better between tax-free savings accounts or RSPs? And I know there's different situations, circumstances, but you know, in your opinion, what would you recommend for somebody if they were earning, let's call it a hundred grand? Let's just take a number and say somebody's earning a hundred grand. They haven't put any money into either one. You know, what would you recommend that they do? I like the strategy of going tax-free savings account as much as you can. And then at tax time, play around with the numbers, see what you need to be an RSP deposit, and then just use your tax-free savings account. (laughs) It's kind of what I like. I would rather never have any money in my RSP because I, my situation is I have a corporation, I have rentals, I have my own, my own thing going on. And when I do retire, I want to make as much of my income tax free as I can. And if I have to start drawing from not only my properties that are held personally, where I'm Um, getting rent payments, hopefully. Um, I'm drawing from that, but I'm also having to draw from my RSP and especially people with pensions. Please use your tax-free savings account first because yes, I understand that there is that savings element at tax time, but you're only just deferring that tax. And when you have a rental property, when you, if you do decide to sell it, there's going to be that capital gains and your RSP could essentially be a tool in your tool belt to be able to reduce some of those taxable gains. But then if you are considering doing some lending, some mortgage um, investing, then, you know, it is nice to have that RSP piece accessible for that. So, that didn't really answer your question, but personally, I, I do like the tax-free savings account and using RSPs um, as my second choice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think we share similar similar views. I think the only other thing I would just add to that is like, if you've got a company that's matching, uh, doing an RSP match, I mean, my company, for every dollar I would put in up to a certain amount, they would, they would actually uh, top it up a dollar 25. That's free money. Get that up until the top up. That is free money. There's no reason why you shouldn't do that. So, so I have RSPs. And the reason I have RSPs is, is because of that, right? So when I worked at Sintas or Lavazza, um, et cetera, and they, and they had great top-up programs, I'm like, I don't want to be not doing that. So you kind of put a dollar in RSP, they give you whatever the match is. Um, and I, I can tell you that that adds up to quite a bit. But I do agree with you, you know, if we do this right, we are not going to be poorer in retirement, we're going to be wealthier. And you know, that if you're wealthier, you're going to be an entire tax bracket. So you're going to pay when you're going to be pulling out that RSP and likely taxes are going to keep going up because they just do. So if you've got 20 years, 10 years or whatnot, likely the tax rates will be higher by then. You're going to pay more tax. If you did it right, you're going to be in a higher tax bracket. Um, now, so other than the match, you know, I do agree with you. Um, the tax-free savings account up until whatever the maximum amount that you can do per year changes every so often, you know, top that up because at least you can retract, pull out the money tax-free. However, 
you have to be able to have the ability not to just take it in, take it out, put it back in, put it back out, you know, use it as what it's intended to be. And you don't use it as like a, you know, revolving line of credit or whatnot, because that, that you're going to miss out, I think, on, on some good gains that way. The last thing I would just say in terms of RSPs, if you've got such a high tax bracket, Again, if you're making, if you're in the highest tax bracket, you know it's going to be individual. But if you've maxed out your tax-free savings and you're in the highest tax bracket, you want to reduce that and and get a refund now potentially to invest the money. It might not be the most horrible idea, but I think if people are in a lower tax bracket, putting in an RSP doesn't really make a whole lot of difference because what you're going to get today back if you're in a low tax bracket is not going to be as good as if you're making, I don't know, 150, 200 grand, you're like in a, in a high, high tax bracket, your return on putting the money in year over year is going to be better the higher tax bracket you're in. I 100% agree. <laughs> and I think never, ever turn away free money. So if there's a matching program, start participating. And like you said about, I think some of the stipulations with RSP is that because it's a retirement savings plan, people don't feel tempted by it. But because of the verbiage of tax-free savings account, it almost does feel accessible. Mm -hmm. So like you said, if you're going to feel tempted to access your RSP or your um, tax-free savings account, even if you don't really benefit it, just for the behavioral and psychological aspect of it, it might make, make more sense to just throw it in an RSP. Um, But honestly, if you can avoid that and just get into really strong, um, not even really strong, just some really, some some good, some mediocre um, financial habits, then, and, and then another thing that I didn't realize people didn't know was that you can have as many tax-free savings accounts as you want. Mm-hmm. I've been hearing a lot lately that people thought they could only have one. And I promise you, you can have a million tax-free savings accounts at every single financial institution. The only caveat is that you cannot go over your limit. So if your limit this year is $68,000 over the lifetime, as long as you've never put in more than that, you can have as many tax-free savings accounts as you want, and then you can name them. So you could say this tax-free savings accounts for eventually when I get to go to Cuba, this one's for um, emergencies, this one's for retirement. Like you can, you can have as many as you want. Yeah, absolutely. The, and the only other thing I would just say is, is before you start moving money in and out of your, your tax-free savings account, you've got to make sure that like, let's just say, for example, it's February and you've got 50 grand in there, like you're taking it out. And then in, in March, you're putting another 50 grand. You know, you've got to be careful because in the same calendar year, and maybe you can talk a little bit on that, but in the same calendar year, you know, the, the stuff that you're taking out and putting back in, it actually counts, I think, against you. But like, maybe you can clarify a little bit what that, what that is. Yeah, it's exactly what you said. So you're, if you had $50,000 in there, and let's say I'm the same person, I'm that $68,000 limit. So I have, I've put in 50, it's grown to nothing. And then I take it out. I actually can't put that 50 back in if I want. I can only put 18 because my limit was 68. 
So I, and your limit doesn't reset until January 1st. Yeah. So if you were to take that money out, you can't put that whole 50 back in until the January 1st. Until the next calendar year. And, I, and, and the, the interest that you're going to pay if you're above that is like not conducive to anything that you're going to make. So you don't, you don't want to be like, I'm going to put in like half a million dollars in there because I'll tell you they're going to eat it up in fees uh, and you're going to pay through you know, a lot more than, than you, you want to any, anyways. So awesome. Well, thanks for that. And uh, so Megan, the next part of the podcast is the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you five questions. Every guest gets the same and you're going to give us the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Megan Chomut. If you're looking for a great financial advisor to add to your team who actually understands and incorporates real estate as part of your overall plan and gets your money working for you, you can reach out to Megan at meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. And also she's offered for my podcast listeners to provide you with a free customized individualized 90 day game plan for getting ahead. So to get that, go to meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-C-H-O-M-U-T.com forward slash Sarah. And now back to the show. All right. Megan, question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book? I hope I'm not giving the same answer as last time, but it's not really a real estate book. It's more behavioral and it's called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's really about just trusting your gut. It's a good book. I don't know if I have it here at the cottage, but we do have that book. (laughs) Awesome. Number two, I don't know if you are a podcast listener, but if you are, it doesn't have to be real estate related. Do you have a favorite podcast? I absolutely do. I love um, Smartless. What's Smartless about? Smartless is um, with the guy from Will and Grace and the two guys from Arrested Development. Cool. Is it like they're just going through skits or just talking or? So it's the three of them um, and they are, they have a surprise guest. So every episode, one of them gets to bring somebody on, but the other two don't know who it's going to be. Oh, cool. Awesome. I'll have to listen to that one. All right. Question number three, what do you do for fun aside from work and real estate? I love, there's a local ski hill here. And since, you know, that's outdoor activities is kind of the activity of choice at the moment. I love to go skiing there with, with my family. Awesome. Question number four, if you lost all your money and all your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? Oh no, that would be terrible. If I had to start all over again, I would borrow money to do exactly what I mentioned before. I would borrow money from somebody to do that duplex. I would live in it. I would pay that person back and then I would do it again and I would move into a three unit. Awesome. With four kids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would do that. Absolutely. (laughs) Nice. All right. And last question Number five, if somebody has $50,000, they want to get started, how would you recommend they spend that money? $50,000 and want to get started, I would recommend maybe taking some of it and getting some education, whether it's buying some support from a mentor, a coach, some books, some um, programs, and looking at the rest as going to your mortgage broker and saying, okay, I have this much left. What advice do you have for me? Um, what are my options? What's my pre-approval? 
and then hopefully pairing the two, the, the lending side with now your mentor or coach or programmer knowledge so that you can pair the two and really grow it. Awesome. Thanks for the advice. Megan, where can my listeners reach out and find out more? My favorite place to hang out is Instagram. So you can go over there. My handle is Megan CFP. And then my website's MeganChomet.com. All right, cool. I always ask this at the end, any final last words of advice? I think everybody who's listening to this episode is already doing great things by trying to acquire as much information and different strategies as they can. I just recommend going out and doing something with it. Awesome. Thanks for that. And thanks for being on the show once again and uh, providing so many great insights and advice for the listeners. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Sarah. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.